You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. You guys have a seat. You know, it is, a, it is a rare thing when we come across individuals that are not a part of this church that really believe in the vision and the mission of this church. Uh, the kind of ministry that we do here, the kind of work that we do here is, as many of you know, very unique and, uh, and very real. And uh, a lot of people are just not interested in getting that deep. And so one of the kind of cool advantages of uh, James and the work that he's been doing with Fearless Series for Women and now Fearless Series for Men is that it's allowed for us to make connections with individuals who do uh, see the value and the vision of silencing your cell phone during church. And also called out. I don't know who that was, so whoever it was, don't take it personally. Uh, and also the value of the vision and the mission of this church, and, and Gary Ingram is one of those people, and uh, I'm, I'm really, really excited to uh, hear from him this morning and for you to hear from him. We've spent uh, the last few days uh, having lunch with him, and uh, he filmed with James on uh, Friday for the Fearless Series for Men as well. He is the founder of Love and Truth Network. He's got a ton of pastoral experience. I think you're going to be very blessed with him. Let's give a warm welcome to Gary Ingram. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, Yeah, I I have been so blessed just to uh, experience a little bit about your church. It was, gosh, it was probably six, seven years ago, maybe a little bit longer, when when I first uh, was exposed to the Conquer series. And of course, uh, James was involved in that. And, uh, And it was, when I heard James speak in the Conquer series, I thought to myself, I really want to talk to that guy. When he described his church, City on a Hill, I thought that is exactly what my heart longs to be involved in. I was, I was on pastoral staff for 12 years at a church in upstate New York, and it was a church that helped me profoundly. And, and I would say, you know, had a, a, a heart similar to City on a Hill in terms of really wanting to reach out to those who are broken, which frankly, that's all of us, right? There ain't any of us that aren't. Uh, there's just those who pretend that they're not. And, and frankly, that's the majority of the church, are those of us who pretend that we aren't. When I say the majority of the church, I, I, the thing is, pretending and putting our quote-unquote best foot forward, we love to clean it up by saying that kind of thing, but presenting, presenting ourselves to others as, um, as having it all together, as uh, presenting only the best parts of ourselves and holding back so much, is actually what we tend to do in the church. It takes real intention not to do that. Shame, fear, pride, it's all working against us being vulnerable. You understand that, right? And so I love uh, going around and speaking on the topics that I talk about. I mean, honestly, what I talk about is simply, it, it's my story in a sense, but it's, more, it's bigger than that. It's God's story. Your story is your story, but it's also God's story. And if I'm going to withhold from others the story of God's work in my life because I'm ashamed about where I've come from, then I am robbing God of his glory and I'm robbing others of hope. And I'm also robbing myself 
of taking, just continually taking a weapon out of the enemy's hand against me that he held over me for years that I was stuck in bondage to. So let me just share a tiny bit about, um, about myself. And um, I, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about my own background. I'm just going to hit the, the, the high notes or actually probably the low notes of my life. The, uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home, youngest of five kids, and I was an oops baby. I wasn't planned for. And nobody was celebrating when they found out that my mom was pregnant. She had me when she was 42. My dad was 44. They were so ready to not have more kids and to raise their other four and kind of be on their own. And now my mom's pregnant again. And so that theme of not being planned for, not being wanted, being in the way, being a burden, really carried through. Now, I, I, I don't think anybody intended for me to feel that stuff. And my mom really did come around to loving me well after I was born, but my dad didn't so much. My dad was from a generation that what, what fathers do, what husbands do, is they work hard, they put a roof over the family's head, they put clothes on our back, food on the table, and that's kind of the extent. And mom takes care of all the emotional stuff, uh, essentially. And so, but I really needed my dad's involvement in my life. I needed... Uh, I needed to know who I was in relationship to him. I have three older brothers, one older sister. I needed to know who I was in relationship to my brothers, uh, to other boys. I needed to know who I was in my own peer group. And so when I went to school, though, I, I was um, really wrestling with, I was extremely shy. I know that's hard to believe, but true. I mean, I would rather be hiding in a corner somewhere than, than, than in public. And, and, and of course, that was just like, you know, red meat for sharks to the bullies in, in school, in, in gym class. So I, I experienced just a lot of rejection, um, bullying, physical abuse, lots and lots of verbal garbage when I was a kid. And, and when you're a kid, there's nothing you can do except just take it and somehow, I, I mean, I, can, I could have fought, and in some cases I did, but in most cases I just took it in and I internalized it and just tried to hide as much as I possibly could. The only safe place for me to be was in, 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 um, that I felt was in the world of girls and, and women. I, my mom and my sister were the only safe place for me at home, really. I mean, my brothers were, were good guys, but they were older enough that they didn't want me running around with them and their, you know, their buddies. I can understand that, certainly now. But growing up in that, what we, we, we feel things that often, as kids, we don't have language for. I wouldn't have thought of rejection or abandonment or any of those kind of things or neglect. But that's really what I experienced a great deal of. At age of five or six, I was exposed to hardcore porn by similar neighborhood boys and their sexual behavior with one another. And so there were just a lot of um, brokenness, a lot of gaps. I really over-identified with my mom and my sister and disconnected from my dad, grew to a point where I hated him, where I hated men, and yet I still, God created us to sort of know who we are in our own gender and relationship to our peers and to our dad and those kind of things. So that was this, just this big mess. And I realized about uh, at puberty, um, I, I was a porn addict. I, I, chronic masturbation was a huge issue in my life. It was the way that I self-soothed. It was the way that, that I escaped um, the, the life that I was living that I frankly was hating. And, and I also realized I'm drawn to the images of men more than women. And I was horrified by that when I realized that. I'd heard a couple of not so uh, grace-filled messages about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There aren't too many of those. And, uh, and, and, I, I, and so for me, I was horrified and I felt like I am an abomination and that God sees me as an abomination. 
and I've just got to stuff this. I've got to hide it. There's no one in my family that's safe to talk to about this. There's no one at church safe to talk to. I did finally work up the nerve to go to a couple of pastors, and these were good guys, but they didn't have a clue of what to tell me. One guy literally, one, my pastor literally got up in the middle of me trying to stammer around. I was probably 15 years old and uh, trying to get the words out of what I was wrestling with. And when he realized where I was going, uh, he literally jumped up, flipped his chair around. We were sitting in the sanctuary by ourselves after a service and uh, flipped his chair around. He actually gave me a pat on the shoulder, which I guess that was generous, and just said, you're not doing so badly. And he just walked off. And, and, uh, you know, and again, I want to stress, he was, he was a good man in many, many, many other respects. He just didn't know what to do. It freaked him out. And so this is how he responded. Another pastor that I met with simply told me, he listened to me, he was very compassionate, but his solution was, Gary, you need to read your Bible more and pray more and memorize scripture. And I, my heart just sank because I was doing all of those things and yet still failing. So fast forward, I, um, I went to... Uh, Bible college, uh, uh, I, I bounced around from public school, Christian school, to homeschooling. So I got, you know, and it wasn't the good kind of homeschooling. There's really excellent homeschooling, and then there's the really crappy homeschooling, and I got the really crappy homeschooling. But uh, I, I finished that up and went to uh, Bible college, and um, it was just a, this miserable time of, of trying to figure out who in the world I was in relationship to God. And and I, I left, I quit Bible college in my fourth semester, went back again, quit again, went back again. I'm not the brightest bulb in the socket sometimes. Went back again and got kicked out a third time because they felt like I was, they were concerned I was suicidal and this really wasn't the place to work out my emotional issues and struggles. And uh, I left Bible college and I felt like this, God, I hate you and I hate your church. I want nothing to do with any of this garbage anymore because I've prayed and prayed and prayed to you to help me with this stuff, and it feels like you're doing absolutely nothing. You're silent. What I know now, and what I've experienced in prayer in, in, in past years, is I absolutely, God met me in a place where it wasn't just intellectual knowledge, it was experiential, uh, an experience of the reality that God was brokenhearted about what I was going through as a child. And he meant for his church to meet me in that place. His church. And so God doesn't just take all, all circumstances of life and wave his wand like I wanted him to and, and just fix me, just fix the circumstance, change my feelings. He doesn't do that. Rarely does he do that. Frankly, I know hundreds and hundreds of people. My wife and I both know hundreds of people who, who have been on a journey out of the LGBT community to pursue Jesus. And there's like two of those people that have had a sudden reorientation, like God did a miracle in their life out of the hundreds and hundreds that we know. And I often joke that we really hate those two people, right? <laughs> um, but God bless them. Um, but for the rest of us, though, honestly, it's a discipleship process. It's not conversion therapy. We as the church are living in a world that, that it's the world. Why would we expect them to think or be any different than what they actually are. The problem is, is that we're so saturated with the world's view and perspective that even when we think we are maintaining something that's different, we are moving in that direction oftentimes because we're not truly anchored in, in the truth of the word of God. I certainly was not. So having said all of that, let me just wrap up before um, I move on to uh, some scripture. Uh, in saying all of that, I... Um, 
I'll fast forward a little bit. My, my wife, Melissa, and I have been married for almost 15 years. She also comes out of, she broke off an engagement to a man when she was in college uh, and, um, uh, and got involved in a lesbian relationship. And she felt like, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And so that, the experience of that was really powerful. The same-sex attraction really kicked in. And had, she, it had not even been a thing for her before. And so um, she, get, she wound up giving her life to Christ and coming to him. But, but giving her life to Christ doesn't automatically negate all of the stuff that we've ever done in the past. We've been forgiven, but we need to work out our salvation, right, in, in fear and trembling. It, we aren't saved by works. That's not what I'm saying at all. But on the basis of the salvation... God wants to uh, reform and, and make us new. And again, it's this uh, discipleship process. And so Melissa and I uh, were married back in 2007. We met at a, a, an inner healing program uh, that we were both attending, not knowing one another uh, at that point. And then um, we got married in, uh, sorry, we got married in 2007. Maybe I said that. And uh, our son was born, first son was born a couple years later, and then our second son a couple years later after that. And... Our boys are now uh, 10 and 12 years old, almost 13 years old, and I'll tell you, there is no greater joy in my life. The thing that I thought, frankly, I would never, ever want to be is a husband to a woman and a father to children. I thought I would be a horrible father. I was sure I'd be a horrible husband. There's no doubt about that, right? And I, I was just, I had so much fear and so much anxiety about that whole thing that I just pushed away from that. But, but, but God... Honestly, but God. I mean, how many of us? I mean, so I'm telling my story, and and in in the light of culture, in the in the in, with the reality that uh, LGBTQ whatever is kind of the centerpiece of culture right now, and it's so celebrated, and and so my story obviously connects with that. But your story is a big deal. Your struggle. There isn't a single man or woman or young person sitting in this room who's not a sexual being, and none of us know how to steward that well. There's not a man, woman, or young person sitting in this room who has not been made in the image of God. And I believe based on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God is having this conversation with himself about creating us in his image. And at the end of 27, it says that he created him male and he, he created us in his image, male and female. He created them. I really do believe that God didn't just put his image in us as humans. He put his image in us as male and female of equal value, but different expressions of his image. Is it any wonder that that image, if it's, if it's in our, um, our feminine and masculine expression, is it any wonder that that is under massive attack today? I said this was really about discipleship, so let, I want to just take you um, for a little bit to, um, I want to spend a little bit of time in Acts uh, chapter 4 and, uh, and chapter 5, and I'm going to do a little bit of jumping around. I, I do apologize. I uh, thought there was a, a countdown clock. What time do I need to be done for this service? So I, what is it? 10, Thank you. All right. Got it. Thank you. Noon, huh? All right. So, so John and James in chapter 3 had this experience of healing this guy who is in his 40s who had been lame from the time he was born. So he couldn't walk. And, and these guys come up, and, and I'm just give, telling you a little bit of the history. They come up and they heal him, and then they use that healing to be the basis 
for, I mean, everybody knows this guy. Like he's been at the gate um, begging for um, money every day for countless numbers of years practically. And so they all know him and they see him walking around. They see him with James and John, uh, uh, with, um, sorry, uh, Peter and John. And so the, um, uh, so they all, there's this crowd and there's, there's this great um, message that's going out and, and really Peter is just nailing them, no pun intended, that they are the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. I mean, by give, surrendering him and giving him over. And, um, and so the Pharisees, though, get wind of it. They come and they drag these guys off to, uh, to prison uh, overnight. And then they, they bring them in and they're questioning them and all this. And so here's in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, we pick up with this. Now, as they observed, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Hello, I certainly qualify. Quit twice from Bible college, got kicked out a third time. I did go back and finish some of my credits and got a degree. But anyway, um, the, uh, but, but as they observed their confidence... As I speak to churches, as I do a lot of individual uh, work, having been a pastor for 12 years before we started our ministry back in 2013, as I'm meeting with people and talking with, uh, with individuals, I'm not hearing a lot of confidence from Christians. Not many of them. Confidence about salvation. But honestly, there's a, there's a, a friend and author of mine who's a couple of them who's done a lot of work from the perspective of we've divorced the gospel from the kingdom and, and, and the kingdom of God on this earth and moving, moving the kingdom out on the earth. And, and instead, what we've oftentimes relegated the gospel to is simply that we're just going to hunker down in this life and try to get through it. And, and, and one day we're going to uh, die and go to heaven. Praise God. Like that's what salvation is about. That's what the gospel is about. No, it's not. That's a part of it. That's what's coming, yes. But the gospel, salvation comes to us to break the power of sin in our lives. So we don't have to live under the tyranny of that any longer. And knowing that, we have confidence. We have confidence in Christ. We have confidence to break through the power of addiction. But so often, like myself, I was trying to break the power of various forms of addiction in my life all by myself. Can anybody else relate to that? Don't we all want to do that? Because of shame, pride, and fear, we don't want anybody else to know about it. But it is, that is God's one prescription, I'm convinced, for actual healing and transformation is he pours it out through community. We'll go to any other length to avoid that, and yet... How many of us have come up short over and over and over again only to repeat the behavior, only to stay on that cycle? And in verse, uh, the end of verse 13, the, these religious leaders began to recognize what a powerful thing that they were untrained, they were confident, and they had been with Jesus. I love in, in Mark chapter 3, I believe it is, that when Jesus is choosing the apostles, that um, Mark records he chose them to be with him. And then he sent them out to preach. And then he sent them out to have authority over demons. But first, they needed to be with him. I, I, there's a huge difference between knowing a lot of facts about Jesus, which is what I grew up with, knowing a lot of facts about Jesus, and actually being with Jesus. Those are entirely different experiences. And I think we have, um, in, in many ways, we have a church that is full of people who know a lot of facts about Jesus and, and maybe grew up in a Christian home, but they, don't, they, aren't, they haven't been with Jesus. 
I prayed the sinner's prayer a number of times as a kid. And I grew up in a Baptist church, which, you know, you do it once and you're done, right? I'm not sure. Again, I, I didn't learn my lesson very well. But, um, but it wasn't until my early 20s, I'm absolutely convinced I was spiritually as dead as a doornail. I, I strung the right words together, and I prayed a prayer, but there was no surrender in it whatsoever. I just didn't want to go to hell. And it wasn't until my 20s when I had lived the life of a gay man. I, I, I fully embraced, when I left Bible college, I fully embraced a gay identity. I uh, found my first gay bar, began living the life, went through a series of, of I, I wouldn't even dignify them to call them relationships. But I mean, I was searching, I was lonely, I was hurting, I was broken, and I was turning to the whatever it seemed like could fill that up for me. I went on from there, I became a bartender at a gay club, and I, again, just fully saturated myself in that life. And yet, it, so it was after that that my salvation was actually on the side of an interstate in New Jersey. My wife loves that. She's from New Jersey. I mean, of all places, you know, to, I'm just kidding. Um, but but uh, on the interstate in New Jersey, my salvation prayer was, Jesus, I've made a complete wreck of my life. And I don't even know if you want what's left of me, but if you do, you can have it. That was the real deal because there was surrender in that. So we go on, and, uh, and the, the religious leaders drag Peter and John out the next day and, and tell them they are not to proclaim anything in this name of Jesus. Like, they, they're thinking, we killed, the, we killed him, and this whole thing's going to end. Well, of course, it didn't, and it doesn't. And what Peter and John answers and says to them, I think this is so relevant for our time. It is fearful at times. I, I experience fear. Uh, not, not like my life is under threat, but I experience fear of cancel culture, I mean, the weight of that, of, of telling my story and proclaiming that God, the threshold of the transforming work of God does not stop at the threshold of the LGBT community or any other thing that any of us are struggling with. It doesn't. And so, um, but I think this is such a good word for me and for us. Peter and John answer to these leaders and says, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I want to encourage you, you have a testimony. And you might be in the middle of an addiction. You might be in the middle of, you know, I wish it was an addiction. I mean, a plethora of, of struggles. I want to encourage you that you have a testimony. You have a story that God has, um, that God is working out in your life. If you will open your heart to him, if you will do, if you will follow God's prescription for healing, James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. We've oftentimes gotten the forgiveness of Jesus mixed up with the healing of Jesus. The forgiveness comes directly from Jesus to us when we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, right? We love that verse. Are y'all pretty, pretty familiar with that verse? My former pastor used to say it's the best mental health verse in all of Scripture. Uh, that particular one, 1 John 1, 9. But if you back up two verses to 1 John 1, 7, it says, If we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. That 1 John 1, 9, and obviously 1 John 1, 7, we're talking about that being in the context of community. We cannot separate ourselves from community. We can't deal with all the junk and the crap just between us and God and leave everybody else out of the equation 
and then come into community and act like uh, we pretty much have it all together. I'm going to get to that. I'm gonna, I want to loop back to that in just a minute. As we go through uh, chapter 4, um, we see this uh, prayer starting in, in, um, in verse 29, where they, they say, Now, Lord, take note of their threats, the religious leaders, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. In this day, some of it's going to be religious leaders, but much of it's going to be just the threats of, of culture as well. Um, actually, you may or may not be aware that in Canada, back in December, uh, Bill C-4 was passed, which makes it illegal even for an adult to pursue counseling if they have feelings and desires that they don't, they don't want to act on. Same-sex desired, trans uh, struggles, they cannot seek out a Christian counselor or, or any licensed counselor to help them. It's illegal for that person to help them do anything other then go in the direction, be guided in the direction of embracing a pro-LGBTQ uh, perspective in life. It's illegal in Canada right now, not just for kids, but for adults. And just on Thursday, uh, there was a hearing in Arizona uh, that was uh, co-authored uh, by both parties and, and uh, leaders of both parties, and it would, um, it, it would make um, what's called conversion therapy, which is talk therapy, it would make it illegal for, a, for someone 16, 17 years of age, a young person, any, whatever, a, a child, to find a counselor uh, and, and work with that counselor who may be very well qualified to walk through sexual trauma, sexual abuse, the results of that. You, it, it would make it illegal in, in uh, Arizona. So my team and my wife and I wrote... Um, Testimonies. I had to be here, otherwise I would have loved to have been with them, but my team went down and, and uh, shared before this committee, uh, and others shared about how counseling helped them profoundly uh, to work through some issues of sexual abuse and other things that fed into uh, the development of, it's not all about sexual abuse, but trauma that fed into the development of some of these attractions and desires and things that we didn't want to act on. And frankly, one of the most basic tenets of mental health is the right of self-determination. And that's being taken away um, from young people under the guise of safety and protection. Don't be fooled by it. So grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. There's that word again, confidence. While you extend your hand to um, heal and signs and wonders take place through, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with all boldness. We can speak with boldness without being jerks. Too often the church has done that. Too often uh, our ministry is named Love and Truth Network for a reason. We believe that um, if you take truth away from love, it's no longer truth. It is sloppy, frankly, pretty worthless grace, so-called. You, if you take love out of truth, then it just winds up being this weaponized hammer that beats everybody over the head. Oftentimes, we can point to Scripture to do that, and people are lost in the midst of all of that. We need to fully embrace Jesus was full of grace and truth. It wasn't 50-50. He was full of grace and truth, and we need to learn how to model that. The gospel is offensive enough I mean, it calls us to die. It calls us, it says that, you know, we can't make it on our own. It's impossible. It's offensive to us 
We are to die and be raised to new life. We don't need to add our own brand of offense to the gospel. It reminds me, when I say that, I was at a United Methodist um, global conference in St. Louis. I'm not United Methodist, but I, I actually run a ministry part-time that, that functions within that denomination. And if you know anything about the United Methodist Church, that second largest denomination under the Southern Baptist uh, Church, it's uh, getting ripped apart over the issue of, um, well, the presenting issue is LGBTQ, but there's all kinds of, I mean, there's so many leaders and pastors that don't believe that Jesus is the only way. They don't really, they, they, they look at the Bible as being, uh, you know, a nice idea in many ways, but, um, but they don't, they're not even followers of Christ in that sense. And so um, I was at this conference and uh, Westboro Baptist uh, Church was there. I don't know if you know who they are. Uh, they were on the street corner opposite us with their bullhorns and, and just screaming out, you know, fags and queers and, and you got, you're going to hell, God hates you, uh, and you need to repent. Well, I mean, what an invitation, right, uh, to repentance. And so, um, I mean, it was just horrendous. But they were there all, the, the thing lasted like 10 days, and they were there um, just going on. I don't, uh, unfortunate. Uh, it, what's, what's so unfortunate is that those snippets get um, uh, grabbed and put on the news and all around as if this is a re representation of the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's anything but that, frankly. So in chapter 5, here's what I really wanted to share with you out of, um, out of getting into, into Acts 4. It progresses to a point. Actually, let's just back up to uh, a little bit in Acts 4. It, it, it talks about the fact in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them. Many, many were coming, 5,000 at a time were coming to faith in Christ. And um, it said that all who were owners of land and houses would sell, and, sell them and bring the proceeds uh, of the sales. And of course, this was a free will offering. There was nothing in the government that was forcing them to do this. It was just their hearts desired to pour into the kingdom of God. And they would lay this, the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And, they, and then they would distribute the, the, the proceeds to those that had need. Now it says that um, Joseph, it's actually Barnabas, as it explains a little, a little bit later, um, was, uh, which is translated, his name, Barnabas, is translated son of encouragement. He owned a tract of land, verse 37, sold it and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, there was a, name, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. They sold their property. Who knows this story, right? They sold their property, and they're watching what's happening, and they're watching how everybody, so many other people, Barnabas is one of them, but many others, are selling their property and bringing the proceeds and, and giving it to the apostles. And so they want in on the esteem. They want in on this, uh, the idea that they're, they're just, uh, that they're selling their property and that they're giving all of it away to, uh, to God's work and to those that have need. But instead of that, what they do is they sell it, they keep half of it back or about bring the other half and say, this was everything that we got for our property. And, and uh, of course, it didn't go so well for them, right? Those of you that know the story. What happens is, I mean, they both, God strikes both of them dead because they were both in on the scheme. And I've often, I thought, well, gosh, that's tragic. And boy, that seems like a really harsh uh, 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 sentence or whatever for what they did. But here's what I realized. A few months back, maybe six months ago, I was kind of pondering this passage. And, and I just felt like the Lord really quickened my heart the truth is that most of us in the church live out the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. We don't do it by selling our property. 
and bringing the proceeds to the church and lying about what it is. We do it by what I was saying earlier. We present a good but false self. And why is it false? It may, it may not be. Some of the things we might be presenting, maybe they're not true about us. Maybe they're exaggerated. But maybe they're not exaggerated. Maybe everything that we're saying about ourselves or presenting ourselves to be, maybe those things are true. The problem is, is there's so much other garbage in the background, and we're saying, this is all of who I am. The church is absolutely anemic and broken because we refuse to be vulnerable with one another. Again, pride, fear, and shame are heavy chains that need to come off of us. And the only way that those things, that shame is broken with regard to our, to our past, or fear or pride is broken with regard to our past or our present, is through us choosing to be vulnerable. The man or the woman who refuses to let anybody into their life, it, maybe the guy's a gym rat. That person is struggling profoundly with a lack of courage. That guy, that woman, is living in fear or pride or shame. We need to break through that. There is a, there's a world in need, but frankly, there's a church in need. The majority of the church, I travel all around the country, the majority of the church is not living out the community that God calls us to. When is the last time? And I think in this church, there will be a number that could answer this um, in, in, in the affirmative or say, yes, I do that. When is the last time that you've had a thorough confession of your sins with anyone? I am absolutely convinced that every son of God needs a band of brothers, three or four other guys. Every daughter of God needs a band of sisters that knows everything about you, and you know everything about them. You're not the project. You're just a part of this band of brothers or this band of sisters, and you're doing life together. We've got each other's back. We reach out to one another when we're struggling with temptation. We reach out to one another when we've blown it in some way. And, we're, and we work to get on the other side, rather than just learning to confess our sin over and over and over again, which is, a, which is better than not confessing it to anybody at all. That may be the first step. But we've got to get to the other side of that and say, you know what, before I fall, before I fail, and whatever that, we all have besetting sin areas. For many of us, it, it is something sexual. Again, we're sexual beings. We don't know how to steward that all that well. But we are also men and women made in the image of God. And that is an identity that is true for believer and unbeliever alike. It's true for every person on the planet that we've been made in the image of God. And in Christ, the new man, the new woman gets to rise up and learn what does it mean to be a man or a woman made in the image of God. That question was challenging for me. Being a man made in the image of God was not me being in relationship, sexual or romantic relationship with another man. I was drawn to that powerfully because of past experiences in my life. I was drawn to that powerfully because I felt like I was a husk of a man. And in my emptiness, in my dad's lack of awareness, and my dad and I became very close later in life, but in, my lack of, in his lack of awareness of what I needed as a boy for him, he didn't have it. 
when he was growing up. But in that lack of awareness, it's as if there's like this acorn of masculinity in us. Just, just run with that analogy for a moment. And, and, uh, or, or femininity. And unless it is activated, it, it, it lies dormant or it starts to grow, but it doesn't grow in a healthy way. One of the things that we often do, even as followers of Christ, is we bend in to other people. We make idols out of our spouses. That does not mean that, we, that there's not a healthy interdependence on our spouse. I'm not saying that. But we tend to make idols out of other people. We make idols out of things. And all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, you see idolatry and sexual immorality are linked over and over and over again. Those were common stumbling blocks. So I, I believe that we absolutely need to take this caution about Ananias and Sapphira really seriously. We need to be willing, if there's stuff that you're holding on to, if there's stuff that I'm holding on to, it needs to go to the cross through confession to another. And I, and I would say, you know what, my wife is a licensed counselor and there's an absolute place, I, I am so thankful for the counseling I've had over my life, lifetime. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Being a pastor, be, having, I have had some really phenomenal pastors that did walk with me later in life. Some of, the, some of my early experiences weren't so great, as I said. But, um, and I'm so thankful for them. But there is no replacement. We, we would love to just go to a counselor or go to a pastor who we know will never say a peep about anything that we've, ever, that we've said, and that's good. They shouldn't. But until we start to live it out in the body of Christ, that masculinity, that femininity, and here's what I mean by that. I, I'm not talking about just the kind of masculinity that is, um, uh, that is opposite sex attracted or femininity that's opposite sex attracted. Just because you're opposite sex attracted doesn't mean you have any more of a clue of what it means to be made in the image of God than I did. God used the community of men, my band of brothers. They didn't even know what they were doing. He knew what he was doing, and he used them to activate that acorn of masculinity to a point now that, you know what? I have some voice inflection. I have some mannerisms, nothing like they used to be. I mean, I've been out of the LGBT community for many years now, but um, I know I have some of the scars that still point to, to that, but I am so solid in my sense of masculinity. I'm solid as a husband to my wife. I'm solid. That doesn't mean I'm not tempted by other things. My wife and I both talk about the fact that, yeah, we still experience some same-sex attraction. Big deal. It doesn't rule our lives. Why wouldn't we? It's stupid to think that we wouldn't. But, it, but we absolutely have the authority and the power to walk in freedom uh, regardless of the temptation and to say no to that. Let me just um, wrap up by, by, as I was thinking about your church, I was thinking about sitting on the hill, and um, sitting on a hill, and I was thinking about this passage about Ananias and Sapphira. Again, I know that what's, one of the things that's so unique about this church, and one of the reasons I love coming, I, I loved coming here and talking to Derek and to James and to Brian and so many others, is that you guys want to be intentional. The leadership wants to be intentional about 
living in a place of vulnerability and transparency so that we're not doing what Ananias and Sapphira did. Like we're bringing the whole thing, the good and the bad and the ugly. That doesn't mean that you go through the McDonald's drive-thru and tell the person giving you your food all about your history, right? I mean, come on. It doesn't, uh, and it doesn't mean, but, they're, but again, you're developing that band of brothers, band of sisters, and it's simple. For me, going, I used to think it was this big, complicated thing. And with my background, what guy is going to want to spend time with me unless they come out of the same background? But the truth is, and I needed guys that didn't deal with my stuff. I needed guys that, that had never struggled with same-sex attraction in my life. But it was simple. I, I began going up to guys and saying, and I was on pastoral staff at this point. But I, 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 I had some guys that I'm like, you know what? Even as a pastor, I want to go deeper in my walk with Jesus. And, and there's some things in my life that I feel like are getting in the way of that. And I wonder if you have a desire to go deeper in your walk with Jesus too. And if you do, I'd like to get together. I'm going to be at Panera Bread. I'm going to be at so-and-so's house or uh, at 6 in the morning, 6.30 in the morning. And you know what? We wound up with three different groups of men meeting at 6 in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, Monday Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for several years of guys that just wanted to be real and raw and pray for each other and have each other's back. When I was thinking about um, this church, though, in, in the, the concept of Ananias and Sapphira and, uh, and sharing our stuff, I was reminded of, um, let's see if I can find it here, of uh, Paul's words in, in, as he's writing to the Thessalonian church. And he commends them in so many ways uh, for the love that they have. But let me read this, this passage, and I'll wrap up with this. First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Do you ever wonder what the will of God is for your life? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, much, so many times in my past, and I hear it all the time now, basically, how close can I get to sin and still be okay with God? That is the wrong question. That is a horrendous question that I used to ask, well, ask inwardly, not to anybody else. That already says there's something really off in the relationship. Um, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. I was not doing that for many years of my life. Not just about homosexuality, but about sexual sin, fornication, adultery is an issue. Pornography addiction is a huge issue in the church. Massive numbers of men in the church are looking at pornography, and also that's a women's issue. It drives my wife nuts to attend a church and see that they have a a program for men uh, dealing with pornography. We love that. But where's the program for women? Because women are dealing with pornography issues, especially at younger and younger ages. And there's plenty of pastors who are caught up in that stuff too. Each of you know how to, uh, uh, that each of you would know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we told you, before and solemnly warn you that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. By the way, I just want to say, in the church, we have a real issue with young people in particular living together and coming to church and not having, having sex, thinking that, well, we're going to be getting married, so what's the big deal? What's the, what's the paper? What's a piece of paper? God over and over again, I'm not going to get into it now, sex is designed for covenant relationship between one man and one woman in that covenant relationship of marriage, not just an intent to get there someday. 
Again, he who rejects this is not rejecting uh, man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, here's what I wanted to just say here. Now as, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you to excel still more. It's good as city on a hill is, and as much as, honestly, I think there are plenty of churches around the country that look at you through the Conquer series and James' connection to the Conquer series and the other video projects he's worked on. City on a hill has a name, and it should have a name. But we can be in a church like this and be around the atmosphere and still commit the sin of Ananias and Sapphira of refusing to bring our whole selves into the community. And by doing that, again, we're keeping God from pouring out into our lives through community and bringing healing through confession, a confessional life. And then we're also, again, as I said earlier, robbing God of his glory and robbing people of hope. Would you mind standing with me as we, uh, I just want to offer a prayer. And then Derek has a couple of uh, closing words, I think. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for City on a Hill. I thank you that many years ago I saw that video and I thought, man, I'd love to meet that James guy. Probably never happened. God, I thank you that just like the Thessalonian church, your Holy Spirit moved Paul's heart to say you're doing so well at loving one another. You're you're an example to the rest of the body in, in, in all kinds and other cities all around here, people are hearing about your deeds. They're hearing about the love you have for each other. But excel still more. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters, that your spirit would, would meet with each one of your sons and daughters right now, young person, older person, and that, they, that we would commit that that 10% we're holding back, that 20%, that 70% that we're holding back and where we're unknown, where we're wrestling and failing and struggling over and over again and nobody knows about it. Lord, I pray that you would, you would give courage. Your courage is available. And I pray, Father, that each of these sons and daughters would just be sick enough of just barely getting by, sick enough of living a double life, that they will say, you know what, I'm not, there's no better place for me than this church right now, sitting on a hill, to be known and to lay down my pride, my fear, and my shame and become known in a way I've not before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Yes. Have a seat just for one moment. I, I, I just want to say, what a what a, a needed message. Amen? Yeah. I've never heard someone so effectively say, really well job, or really well done, good job, now step it up. And you nailed it. That was exactly what we, we needed to hear. Um, Gary and his wife run the Love and Truth Network. Uh, if you have any interest in talking with him after service in the foyer, uh, he said he is more than welcome or more than willing to do that. You're more than welcome to come and speak to him, uh, learn a little bit more about what they do. Um, this will hopefully not be the last time we see you up here, Gary. Um, yes, absolutely. <clears throat>
This is really what it's about. And, and if you are a guest with us this morning, if, if you have not been here for uh, too long of a time, this is who we are. Uh, we are a church that recognizes the value and the power of everything that he just said. And uh, we, every one of us on staff have a story that relates directly to what he just said. I love the fact, I, I mean, I, you know, going to a seminary where everyone is, is very serious about themselves, um, I, I cannot wait to tell them, hey, we had a guest speaker come and preach this weekend, and he, you'll never believe this, he used to be a bartender at a gay club. Yeah, but he turned his life over to Jesus. It's an incredible story now. Uh, that, I guarantee you. We had one pastor, uh, James, James and I were talking about this this past week, uh, of another church that had uh, another connection that we know preach as a guest speaker there. And uh, he got done. This is a fairly large, prominent church in the area. And he got done after the first message, and the pastor said, you can never again say the word masturbate from that stage. And I thought, why? More than 90% of your people are probably doing it. And they need to be talked to about it. It's just, in, it's, in, it's incredible and sad and requires, I think, a lot of prayer, um, the state of the church today. Uh, but there is hope. There is hope in the gospel, and, uh, and we can bring that hope, but we have to live it first. And so, well done. Let's go further. Amen? Now, uh, let me say one more thing before I dismiss you, and this is completely not really on that topic, but a little bit related. We, we've got some family business to, to take care of here for a moment, so if you're a guest, sorry. I need to talk to the youth for a minute. Yeah. Listen, you, where have you been? Because this is amazing. I expect to see this every Sunday. Yeah. I want you to raise your hand if you're committed to making this a part of your Sunday morning routine. Be honest. There it is. Yes. I want to see you here. I want to see you here. You matter. You matter to this church. You matter to the worship of this body. You are a part of this group, and, and we want to see you here. Amen? All right. God bless you. We'll be back next week with uh, more Nehemiah. Y'all have a great week. See you.